Chesterton, Dandelions, and Gratitude. Today I'm reading for you a text by the brilliant G.K. Chesterton, he of the adventures of Father Brown and a great metaphysical thriller entitled The Man Who Was Thursday. Chesterton was born in London in 1874. His essays cover every possible subject, which is why, in one of his first anthologies, entitled Considering It All, he talks about the politics of his day, ideas, art, popular culture, religion, the neighborhood in which he lived. There's even a humorous little piece called What I Found in My Pocket that reminded me, in jest, of the famous story The Aleph by the Argentinian Jorge Luis Borges, who, by the way, was devoted to Chesterton. Chesterton's prose and thought are dazzling, so you have to take it in little sips, often gasping with open mouth because his mind is so full of light and colors. The passage I am going to read to you, and if you're thinking to yourself, why should I listen to a man with such a thick accent read a quintessentially English writer like Chesterton to me? Well, because you're that lucky that you get a Mexican to read for you, that's why. Anyway, as I was saying before I so rudely interrupted myself, the passage I am going to read to you is from the last chapter of Chesterton's autobiography, and it talks about deep, transforming gratitude. Even for those little dandelions that we blow and trample in the fields, without ever paying them any attention or respect. In truth, the story of what was called my optimism was rather odd. When I had been for some time in this, the darkest depths of the contemporary pessimism, I had a strong inward impulse to revolt, to dislodge this incubus, or throw off this nightmare. But as I was still thinking the thing out by myself, with little help from philosophy and no real help from religion, I invented a rudimentary and makeshift mystical theory of my own. It was substantially this, that even mere existence, reduced to its most primary limits, was extraordinary enough to be exciting. Anything was magnificent as compared with nothing. Even if the very daylight were a dream, it was a daydream. It was not a nightmare. The mere fact that one could wave one's arms and legs about showed that it had not the mere paralysis of a nightmare. Or, if it was a nightmare, it was an enjoyable nightmare. In fact, I had wandered to a position not very far from the phrase of my Puritan grandfather when he said that he would thank God for his creation if he were a lost soul. I hang on to the remains of religion by one thin thread of thanks. I thanked whatever gods might be, not like Swinburne, because no life lived forever, but because any life lived at all, not like Henley, for my unconquerable soul, but for my own soul and my own body, even if they could be conquered. 
This way of looking at things, with a sort of mystical minimum of gratitude, was, of course, to some extent, assisted by those few of the fashionable writers who were not pessimists, especially by Walt Whitman, by Browning, and by Stevenson. Browning's God must be glad one loves his world so much, or Stevenson's belief in the ultimate decency of things. What I meant, whether or not I managed to say it, was this, that no man knows how much he is an optimist, even when he calls himself a pessimist, because he has not really measured the depths of his debt to whatever created him and enabled him to call himself anything. At the back of our brains, so to speak, there was a forgotten blaze or burst of astonishment at our own existence. The object of the artistic and spiritual life was to dig for this submerged sunrise of wonder, so that a man sitting in a chair might suddenly understand that he was actually alive and be happy. The chief idea of my life is the idea of taking things with gratitude and not taking things for granted. The real difficulty of man is not to enjoy lampposts or landscapes, not to enjoy dandelions or chops, but to enjoy enjoyment, to keep the capacity of really liking what he likes. That is the practical problem which the philosopher has to solve. And it seemed to me at the beginning, as it seems to me now, in the end, that the pessimists and optimists of the modern world have alike missed and muddled this matter through leaving out the ancient conception of humility and the thanks of those who know themselves to be unworthy of the countless gifts received. Both the happy hedonists and the unhappy pessimists were stiffened by the opposite principle of pride. The pessimist was proud of pessimism because he thought nothing good enough for him. The optimist was proud of optimism because he thought nothing was bad enough to prevent him from getting good out of it. There were valuable men of both these types. There were men with many virtues. But they not only did not possess the virtue I was thinking of, but they never thought of it. They would decide that life was no good or that it had a great deal of good. But they were not in touch with this particular notion of having a great deal of gratitude, even for a very little good. That mystical mood in which the yellow star of the dandelion is startling, being something unexpected and undeserved. There are philosophies as varied as the flowers of the field, and some of them weeds, and a few of them poisonous weeds. But they none of them create the psychological conditions in which I first saw or desired to see the flower. Men will crown themselves with flowers and brag of them, or sleep on flowers and forget them, or number and name all the flowers only in order to grow a super flower for the Imperial International Flower Show. Or, on the other hand, trample the flowers like a stampede of buffaloes, 
or root up the flowers as a childish camouflage of the cruelty of nature, or tear the flowers with their teeth to show that they are enlightened philosophical pessimists. But this original problem with which I myself started, the utmost possible imaginative appreciation of the flower, about that they can make nothing but blunders, in that they are ignorant of the elementary facts of human nature, in that, working widely in all directions, they are all, without exception, going the wrong way to work. Since the time of which I speak, the world has, in this respect, grown even worse. A whole generation has been taught to talk nonsense at the top of its voice about having a right to life, and a right to experience, and a right to happiness. The lucid thinkers who talk like this generally wind up their assertion of all these extraordinary rights by saying that there is no such thing as right and wrong. It is a little difficult in that case to speculate on where their rights come from. But I, at least, leaned more and more to the old philosophy which said that their real rights came from where the dandelion came from, and that they will never value either without recognizing its source. And in that ultimate sense, uncreated man, man merely in the position of the babe unborn, has no right even to see a dandelion, for he could not himself have invented either the dandelion or the eyesight. The first thing the casual critic will say is, What nonsense is all of this? Do you mean that a poet cannot be thankful for grass and wildflowers without connecting it with theology? Let alone your theology? To which I answer, Yes. I mean he cannot do it without connecting it with theology unless he can do it without connecting it with thought. If he can manage to be thankful when there is nobody to be thankful to, and no good intentions to be thankful for, then he is simply taking refuge in being thoughtless in order to avoid being thankless. When first it was even hinted that the universe may not be a great design, but only a blind and indifferent growth, it ought to have been perceived instantly that this must forever forbid any poet to retire to the greenfields as to his home, or to look at the blue sky for his inspiration. There would be no more truth associated with green grass than with green rot or green rust, no more to be recalled by blue skies than by blue noses amputated in a freezing world of death. Poets, even pagans, can only directly believe in nature if they indirectly believe in God. When there is no longer even a vague idea of purposes or presences, then the many-colored forest really is a ragbag, and all the pageant of the dust only a dustbin. That is the first note that this common human mysticism about the dust or the dandelion or the daylight or the daily life of man does depend, and always did depend, on theology, if it dealt at all in thought. 
that was Chesterton, explaining that this precious virtue of gratitude is only complete and rational, intelligent, when we recognize the origin of the gifts we are so grateful for. Otherwise, if there is no one to think for what we receive, we're talking to the void without making any sense when saying thank you. Thank you? Thanks to whom? Who is this you in thank you? This is why it is irrational to deny the connection of gratitude with some form of theology, some notion of the divine. Sorry, my atheist friends. Our precious and genuine gratitude requires a recipient to whom we are saying thank you for the sunrise, for the light and warmth of the sun, for a blue sky, for an imposing landscape, for the simple and critical fact that we are here, alive, to contemplate the dawn, the blue sky, the imposing landscape. Are we saying thank you to nothingness? Of course not. We cannot thank nothingness for nothing. Are we saying thank you to life, to Mother Nature, or to our own creative efforts? Unless we are talking to the void, our gratitude has a recipient, and that is why we are committed to some theology. We are pantheists if we give thanks to the universe, to life, to the whole. We are New Age pagans if we give thanks to Mother Nature. If our gratitude, on the other hand, is only to ourselves and our own efforts, then we ourselves are the object of our religion, and we declare ourselves the source of all that is good in the world. I don't know how we manage to create the dawn, the blue sky, the imposing landscape with our own efforts, but hey, <laughs> let's keep it up, because we are cosmically amazing. There's nowhere to hide. We are committed to a theology, to some notion of God or the divine. As Chesterton said somewhere else, if there were no God, there would be no atheists. Thanks for listening. If you liked it, press the little heart, subscribe, and share.